So good afternoon, Sangha. Can you hear me? That works. Let's just sit for a second. So, tonight I'm going to talk about some things that can be very helpful out in our daily walk of life. And I want to start off with uh, two quotes. One is said to be the quote of an old Cherokee grandfather. And you know about those native attributions of quotes, but I actually do have some pretty good Cherokee friends and I asked them if this was indeed an old Cherokee grandfather and they said, oh yeah, yeah, sure, that we said that. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm happy to uh, keep the attribution. So um, an old Cherokee grandfather is teaching his grandson about life. A fight is going on inside me, he said to the boy. It's a terrible fight, and it's between two wolves. One is evil. Uh, he, she, or they has anger and envy, sorrow, regret, greed, arrogance, self-pity, guilt, resentment, lies, false pride, and ego. He continued, the other is good. Uh, she, here, they have wisdom, joy, peace, patience, serenity, determination, humility, kindness, empathy, generosity, truth and compassion, and a lot of faith. And the grandfather said to the grandson, and the same fight is going on inside of you and inside of every other person too. The grandson thought about it for a minute and then asked his grandfather, which wolf will win? The old Cherokee simply rep replied, the one you feed. The one you feed. And this is a saying about another old grandfather, another old indigenous grandfather, I guess I could say. Uh, Ajahn Chah. Indigenous, maybe not, but forest tradition. This is what Ajahn Chah said. He said, this path consists of virtue, concentration, and wisdom, the framework for training the heart. The true meaning of this is not to be found in these words, but dwells in the depth of our hearts. However, if the factors of the Eightfold Path are weak and timid, the defilements will possess our minds. If Maga, the path is strong and courageous, it will conquer and destroy the defilements. If it's the defilements that are powerful and brave while the path is feeble and frail, the defilements will conquer our hearts. As Dhamma practice develops in the heart, these two forces have to battle it out every step of the way. 
It's like there are two people arguing inside the mind, but it's just the path of Dhamma and the defilement struggling to win domination of the heart. The path guides and fosters our ability to see clearly. As long as we are able to see clearly, the defilements will be losing ground. But if we are shaky, whenever defilements regroup and regain their strength, the path will be uh, routed as defilements take its place. The two sides will continue to fight it out until eventually there is a victor and the whole affair is settled. That's pretty much the same story. And I think for me, when I wonder, well, what is this, you know, if there is no, if anatta or non-self is true, then what is there there? And for me, this kind of answers that question. And I think, you know, this, uh, our time together, we've all seen both of these forces at work. We've seen you know, the greed, hatred, and delusion and the many manifestations of that. And we have seen, you know, the um, four divine abodes. We've seen loving kindness and compassion and joy and equanimity. And um, so tonight I want to specifically talk about um, the development of the paramis. The paramis are a set of um, really wholesome positive qualities that uh, we develop in the path, that we develop along the path. Um, One of my favorite references for this is, you know, I've talked a lot in the groups and I think in the um, hall as well about one of my favorite teachers, Ajahn Suchito. And he has a book called The Parami and it's free, you can download it. And there is a link to the book on my sheet that will be outside. So don't worry about, you know, having to remember everything I say because the book is a much better reference for what we were talking about. So please do avail yourself of that. So the 10 paramis. I'm going to go through them and then what I'm going to do is talk about a few of them very specifically. I'm going to talk about uh, generosity and about sila, moral moral restraint, and patience a little bit. I wanted to talk about patience a little bit as well. And actually, right in the uh, teacher room before before uh, we started, I gave all the teachers the Eightfold Path Test. And I'm going to give it to you guys right now. <laughs> or actually, it's the Sila Test. So maybe I'll pull it out when I talk about um, Sila or ethical conduct. So um, these are the uh, 10 paramis. Uh, this is the way that it's organized in our um, Theravada, our Western Theravada convert Buddhist tradition. And I think in the Theravada tradition more generally. And um, in the Mahayana and uh, Vajrayana, the Zen and um, other Mahayana traditions, Jodo Jinsu and others, and in the um, Vajrayana tradition, the Tibetan tradition, there's six of them, I think. Yeah, there's six of them. But, you know, 
with the idea that more is better, we have 10 of them. <laughs> so I'm just going to go through them very, um, I don't know how quickly, and then talk about a few of them specifically. And, um, you know, people have asked me about, um, you know, how we bring what you've seen here. And I just love that, you know, we were talking about what a deep retreat this is, even though there's 53 people sitting in the retreat who this is their first retreat. And there seems to have been a real depth of practice. It's really beautiful to see a lot of, a lot of faith was nurtured and... Um, it was just really beautiful to see. And people have asked, so how do I take this back with me? What does this mean for me having a job and having other goals in life? I mean, what do I do with that? And actually, I think it's pretty simple. Let me read you this one, co uh, uh, one quote from one of the original OGs, uh, Jack Kornfield. And this is Our Highest Intentions. No matter what situation we find ourselves in, we can always set our compass to our highest intentions in the present moment. Perhaps it is nothing more than being in a heated conversation with another person or, you know, insert anything there, working on the job or driving the kids to soccer or, you know, being in the shopping market. Um and stopping to take a breath, we can ask ourselves, what is my highest intention in this moment? If we can have enough awareness to take this small step, your heart will give you an answer that will take the conversation or whatever you're doing in a direction more positive, a more positive direction. This was really uh, up for me. I think it was about a year and a half ago. I was going through something at the university and... I was just not in a very balanced uh, state about it. And, um, you know, I was teaching actually this, the P1, part one of the IMS uh, three-month retreat. So I was sitting next to Joseph and Guy Armstrong and uh, Carol uh, Wilson and um, Sally. And it was just, you know, a wonderful experience. And I was just really a little bit perturbed and... Carol Wilson, you know, one of my favorite teachers and a dear friend, uh, said, Bonnie, let's go for a walk. <laughs> and I said, okay. And we had a walk, and she really let me just spew what, you know, the basis of my upset was. And she said, you know, Bonnie, I know that um, being in higher education sometimes is really um, conflictual for you. You know, to be successful there, you might be complicit with some things that you don't appreciate or believe in, but, you know, you can always set your intention for doing what you're doing to be whatever you want it to be. You do not have to go by the intention that the people who, you know, who set up whatever you're doing are doing. So I know that, you know, you do a lot of work in tribal communities and you really think that's important work and it's, you know, trying to create the social determinants for equity and health. You know, go through this process with that in mind that you want to continue doing that. And it made me realize that we can do that for anything. Anything that we're doing, we can set an intention, our own intention for doing it. And when we're doing that, it'll water the seeds of what we want 
to plant and nurture in our field of awareness and our field of these forces in our life, right? We don't necessarily have to uh, abide by the, um, you know, dictates of who made up this whatever activity it is, but we can use it to strengthen the paramis in ourselves. So as I go through the paramis, think about that. We might think about, and you know, one thing that we do do is think about which ones we feel that we're strong in. All of you, by definition, the fact that you're here setting this retreat, um, you have some very well-developed paramis. They say that, um, you know, when you have enlightenment experiences, they'll, you know, if you ask what caused that, they'll say your paramis or what caused that. So um, you can, as I go through them, you can think about which ones that you feel like you're really strong in and others that you feel that uh, you might want to develop. And then, you know, going through our life, we can set an intention to develop any of these in everything that we're doing. Set it as an intention to actually work and strengthen these. So the first uh, parami is the parami of generosity or dana of giving. And I love uh, generosity. It's one of my favorite ones. I think for some reason, uh, I can remember having generosity as a big motivation for me personally, even as a small kid. It was like that was something that was really up for me. It said that uh, what is the characteristic of giving or generosity? It's relinquishing. And it's relinquishing in its highest manifestation. It's giving um, without any anticipation of, without any anticipation of uh, outcome of it. It's just the um, absolute idea of giving and just feeling the joy of doing that. And they say in giving, there's joy in the beginning, joy in the middle, and joy in the end. Actually, I was, uh, Tara and I were at um, IRC last week, the Insight Retreat Center in Santa Cruz, California, with uh, Gil Fronsdahl. And um, it was so sweet. Gil said, I want to talk to you, Bonnie. And so we sat off by ourselves, and... Uh, he said, uh, you know, we have a little fund here, and I know you want to bring mindfulness to... Oh, gosh, I'm going to break up thinking about this. <laughs> he said, I know you want to bring mindfulness to, you know, poor communities, people who can't afford them. And he said, uh, we have a little fund here, and I want, you know, to know that I would love to help support you to do that. And um, I said, wow, that's so beautiful. And, he sa and I said, yeah, you could think of it, you know, there's tribes right around here at IRC. You could think of it as an element of reparations. And he said, oh, no, 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 no. It is not reparations, it's generosity. And oh, wow, it was so beautiful that he, you know, refused to have it be involved with some sense of payback or, you know, to be commodified in a way. I just thought it was really beautiful generosity. So the characteristic of generosity is relinquishing. Its function, what does it do? 
It dispels greed for that which can be given away. It helps to reduce greed for whatever you are um, offering. Its manifestation, how does it manifest? As non-attachment. So when you give, it's uh, watering the seeds of non-attachment. And the proximal cause is an object that can be relinquished. And it is said that when you are generous and when you, uh, through generosity, you have loosened the grip of greed, it helps, you know, reduce greed. It helps to develop the, um, the parami or the positive quality of non-attachment. Um, and uh, non-attachment helps develop virtue because it, uh, it really deals with ensuring that, you know, it's concerned with the welfare of everyone else, yourself and everyone else as well. And the second, uh, the second uh, parami or positive quality that we can develop at any time is uh, morality or sila. <laughs> and I love sila. I love to tell the um, story about, you know, I winked at my partner on match <laughs> because he was a Buddhist and, um, and he worked for a local tribe up in the Pacific Northwest. I said, oh, this is interesting. And then when I met him, I absolutely fell in love with him because of his sila. He just had the most incredible positive qualities, you know, never lying, uh, very concerned about making sure that what, you know, he used was freely offered and not taken, you know, just out of greed and, you know, really excellent right speech. It was just great. And I know, okay, I'm just going to say it. Sila is really sexy. <laughs> Those of you who might be single, you might consider that. <laughs> yes, it really is. It's really beautiful. And then Sila, the perfection of Sila, and I'll talk a little bit more about Sila if I have time. Oh my gosh, if I have time. Um, Sila, when we have perfected um, Sila or you know, develop the strength of it, it leads to a sense of renunciation. And renunciation is the third parami. And um, renunciation is characterized by restraint. You know, we realize uh, what really is the cause of our happiness, and it's easy to feel restraint. And the function of... Um, this is beautiful. The function of renunciation is um, to verify the truth of conditioned existence. I love it. And in this way, it, um, you know, this is why it's fine for us to engage in things that bring us pleasure. Absolutely fine. And it's really important that when we're engaging in those things to be mindful of just how much of a hit of pleasure there is in that and where it's going and how long it lasts and whether it really is a sustainable thing and whether it really is a source of well-being for us. You know, engage as much as you can and just uh, see for yourself. And that's this term verification. 
you're verifying for yourself just how useful it is to chase after things in the conditioned world. The manifestation of renunciation is it lessens the attachment to sensual, uh, to the uh, flood of uh, sensuality, to the things that, you know, our culture and economy are based on pretty much. (laughs) And the proximal cause of it, the proximal cause of renunciation is spiritual urgency, samvega. Just uh, awareness of the path of desire. So when you get a sense of some vega of, wow, how much time do I have left? And, you know, what do I want to spend my time doing? It leads to letting go of things that are not going to uh, progress us on the path at all. I want to go through the rest of these rather quickly. Renunciation leads to wisdom panya. And panya looks like clarity. Uh, It's non-confusion. And um, concentration or stability of uh, awareness, samadhi, uh, contributes to wisdom, to seeing clearly. Samadhi in our mindfulness practice. Wisdom leads to energy. And, uh, you know, when we see... Uh, where our, our well-being really is, it fires us up and wants us to spend more um, energy and more of our time and our activities involved with the spiritual path. So wisdom uh, increases our energy. Our energy, interestingly enough, when energy is really strong, it hel- helps support the cultivation and strength of patience. Isn't that interesting? How does it do that? And it's when you have energy or virya, it allows us to um, accept all of the vicissitudes of life. You know, it allows us to be patient with things that are even unpleasant and look like they're crazy. Like many of the things that we're witnessing right now. <laughs> I, You know, that's what I'm actually finding um, I think personally that patience is one of my least developed uh, paramis and I'm really working on developing that. And, um, and it's really helpful given what's happening in the United States right now. Patience is really key for me. Just knowing that, um, you know, the vicissitudes of life happen and things change. And um, one of the um, wonderful things of patience is knowing uh, that karma is absolutely real and no one gets away with anything. You know, it's true. It's absolutely true. And in that way, you know, we have the situation that we deserve because of a way, you know. That's another thing for us to take in if we're dealing with, um, you know, as we go out into the world to just consider that, you know, we have the world that we deserve, it's a hard, you know, thing to face, but, it, you know, it's true. Patience leads to truthfulness. When you're patient and you can hold, um, you know, you're uh, able to um, forestall a lot of attack and hostility and um, incompetence and things like that. <laughs> 
it can lead to truthfulness that you're willing to speak the truth. And if you have wisdom, you can see the truth more clearly. And uh, truthfulness is characterized as non-deceptiveness. And I love this idea because, and uh, it's actually associated with equity truthfulness is because people who are not are not equal who or have to live under oppressive uh, situations can never tell the truth. Think about it. You know, all of the ways that certain groups in our culture and worldwide are held to a standard of view that's almost invisible, they don't dare speak the truth. So... Truthfulness is a really wonderful, beautiful quality. Truthfulness leads to determination or steadfastness, aditana. Aditana, when you feel like you can stick it out and go forward, leads to loving kindness. And loving kindness leads to equanimity. Let me just tell you, so loving kindness... uh, What is it characterized? It's characterized by uh, neutrality. That, you know, equanimity is considered one of the highest spiritual qualities. um, It's said that right before you enter a glimpse of Nibbana, equanimity arises right before that. Because you, you know, you're able to accept anything that... um, anything that arises. It looks like neutrality, you know, like a fortitude that says, bring it, whatever it is, I can hold it. I can hold it with some balance. Its function is impartiality. Uh, What it does, it it, uh, subsides, uh, it lessens our desire, it lessens our clinging nature. Just being, uh, having a strong, Um, a strong force of equanimity uh, in us. And the proximal cause, I love this too, and maybe this is why it's helping me deal with our world right now. The proximal cause of equanimity is understanding kama. That, you know, it looks like other, you know, certain people are getting over, they're, you know, doing things that are benefiting them, and how are they getting away with that? You know, to just understand that no one gets away with anything brings a sense of, okay, this will, get an, this will get taken care of and I don't necessarily need to be the agent of that getting taken care of. It's an interesting idea that um, we don't necessarily need to be the agent of everybody's kama. So the paramis that I wanted to talk about were specifically generosity, because I really love that one. And um, well, before I talk about that, with any of the 10 paramis, there's three stages in the development of the paramis. So we can think about that. The first stage is the initiating stage. And that is just to know what the paramis are. And, you know, the paramis have dimensions to them, like all good things. They have dimensions, and to know those. And absolutely to know the opposite of them. Because um, 
it's in um, a situation of when the opposite of the parami is present, that is the opportunity to develop the parami. That's the opportunity to do it. So the initiating phase is to know what it is, know the dimensions, and then to see when the opposite of the parami is in, is in action. The second uh, uh, phase in development or stage in the development of the parami is the gathering phase. And that's when, I love this idea of, that's when um, you apply the perfection in the face of opposition. And, you know, something in you doesn't want to bother to do it. You're feeling like, why should I even do it right here? And, you you know, you maybe even discuss it with the people around you. Well, let's try to apply patience here. Let's try to apply generosity. And they're going, why do you want to do that? You know, that's not in our mission statement. <laughs> Often other people don't see the point of even wanting to do it. And it's not a convenient thing to do. Oftentimes, applying and practicing these paramis or trying to bring them into what we're doing in the moment and watering the seeds and building the strength of them in our lives, it's not necessarily a convenient thing to do, but it's absolutely walking the path. And then the third stage is this beautiful completion stage of the parami. And as you can imagine probably um, the completion of all of the paramis and the Brahmaviharas are not totally complete until full awakening. But, you know, we know that that's part of the path towards that. And in that case, they say that, you know the parami is complete when you would die rather than to breach the parami. You say, no, it's not worth it. Do me in, I'm not stealing. I'm not engaging in, you know, whatever the um, opposite of the parami is. So let me talk about um, generosity, which I really love. And, you know, many people think of generosity as material resources and for our retreat centers and for the... Um, for the uh, Buddhist community and our community, generosity, the whole system is based on generosity. And that's really based on what the Buddha taught. And, you know, our um, beautiful traditions here in the Asian Buddhist churches in the U.S., which I really think are so beautiful, and uh, the Buddhist churches in Asia as well. Generosity plays a huge part in how people practice um, as you probably know, monastics can, uh, there's only four uh, requisites that any monastics can have, and that is food, shelter, clothing, and medicine. It's the only four, those are the only things that, uh, that the Buddha promised his monastic community, and, uh, you know, the current monastic community, that's the only four things they have. And I think it's pretty interesting that medicine is one of them. Isn't that kind of interesting? <laughs> Anyway, so, um, and generosity is, is um, giving material things and helping to maintain 
the Buddhist community here, but it's also uh, giving other things as well, giving uh, time, giving attention, and um, there's other ways to be generous if you don't have a lot of material resources, absolutely. Volunteering your time is a huge amount if you don't have a lot of material resources. You know, even to help generate a sangha or a spiritual community where you might live could be an excellent expression of dana generosity. To help organize that or help some way to maintain that is a huge uh, gift. And the suttas actually have a lot in them about uh, the uh, karmic uh, manifestations of giving as well. That giving, you know, the highest gift that can be given to anybody as a gift of the Dhamma. I guess that's some good karma. (laughs) So, I'm running out of time here, and I wanted to talk a little bit specifically about sila. That is uh, the second um, parami, the second spiritual quality, that we can practice all the time. We can practice it you know, 24-7 in our lives. This is what Marianne Williamson says. She says, the spiritual path is simply the journey of living our lives. Everyone is on a spiritual path. Most people just don't know it. And that's the idea that, you know, if we, um, if it's useful for us to use the metaphor of these two forces battling it out, you know, everything that we do is either walking towards awakening and towards well-being or walking in the other direction. You know, and the question is, do we have enough mindfulness? That's where mindfulness is so important. Uh, Just to even raise the question, doing this, what direction am I walking in? And, you know, depending on your intention for doing it, and since we have control over our intention for doing anything, just bringing that to mind could have us all strengthening the, um, the uh, path factor, strengthening the parami of sila or ethical conduct in our lives. Wouldn't it be beautiful if everybody did that? What kind of world would we live in? It said that sila is one of the requisites for social harmony. Sila. And there's three elements of sila. You know, there's a lot written on this. That is right speech, not lying, not inciting division in communities, not engaging in harsh speech, and not engaging in idle chatter. I remember once I have a friend, uh, the Venerable Damadina in Seattle, this wonderful nun. And I remember asking her, why did you become a nun? She said, because I don't like to talk just BS with people, you know. I don't want to just engage in useless talk with people. And when I'm wearing this, people don't engage in that with me. You know, she's, she's wearing a monk's, you know, a nun's habit all the time. I thought that was an interesting foundational purpose of wanting to be a nun so she doesn't have to talk, she doesn't have to engage in idle chatter. That makes sense to me. 
And then right action and right livelihood, refraining from killing and killing, uh, right action, refraining from taking, you know, stealing and knowing really, you know, deeply into whether something is freely giving and then refraining from sexual misconduct. Right livelihood is interesting. Not dealing in weapons, not dealing in living being slavery, uh, raising animals for slaughter or prostitution or actually um, human trafficking, which is a lot more common than we know. And um, not making or selling intoxicants or abstaining from any uh, livelihood that breaks the precepts. And actually for me, I love Sila. Like I said, I just think it's a really underrated source of well-being for us. And when we actually engage in ethical conduct, or when we engage in any of the paramis, in generosity or any of them, there's actually inherent, a really positive hit, a happiness, a well-being that comes with that. And um, it's really important for us to see that in our lives, to feel that well-being and that happiness that isn't dependent on you know, having anything or being anything, but just on developing the strength of this path factor of this uh, quality in our lives. And um, so for me, I can, you know, I saw that in my partner, just the beauty of that and just being around him. He just did something the other day. I got a letter the other day from... um, UC Berkeley, a real nice letter, and I wanted to send it to my department chair, (laughs) one who, you know, had, was casting dispersions on the kind of work that I do. I wanted to send it to my department chair, (laughs) right? And I asked my partner, I said, what do you think about that? And he said, oh, Bonnie, (laughs) you know, that's probably not necessary, (laughs) You know, you can reflect on, you know, what that means for you and how happy that makes you and how meaningful that is, but you don't necessarily need to, you know, uh, stab him in the gut by sending it to him. And it was such a beautiful thing. And after he said that, I, I just dropped the idea of doing it. It was, and to have somebody say that to you is, you know, that that's his foundational way he lives in the world was so beautiful. Uh, I'm going to end up here because we're almost out of time, but here's some um, beautiful qualities that arise, it is said, by um, keeping the precepts. And I don't know if, um, did you talk about this? I think you talked about the positive qualities of the precepts, did you? Howie has said so much, so many remarkable, beautiful things, as has uh, Mark and Tara. It's hard to remember. Who said that? foundationally beautiful thing. Um, But here are some of the benefits of keeping the precepts. You will become lovable. So, you know, that's another thing that we do when we keep a sila, when we keep the precepts, is that we are safe, we're a safe person to be around. And we know in our lives who's safe and who isn't, right? So we're giving people the... Um, the gift of safety, which is pretty huge. Another thing, I love this, you're free from self-blame, and actually there's one of these uh, mental, it's a mental factor, it's, um, you know, one of the 52 mental factors, um, blamelessness, the bliss of blamelessness. 
You can think of all of the arguments and fights of the, that are in your life between, you know, big, huge ones or even small ones in your lot, you know, in your family or between friends or whatever. And to just know that you did everything that you could and didn't do anything that was, um, you know, inherently harmful to anyone. The bliss of blamelessness, it's really a wonderful thing to be able to sit with in the midst of, you know, craziness that's going on around you. It's also a force in our lives. So if you keep the precepts, wise people won't gossip or yell at you. That's pretty good. You won't go to jail. Unless you're falsely accused. <laughs> Tar's over there going, well, that's not always true. <laughs> and you create the uh, conditions for good things to happen to you. You know, the, the sila is a wonderful, positive karmic, has a wonderful, po positive karmic impact on us. So, you know, we offer that to ourselves and to the entire world just to work with sila as much as we can. I was also going to uh, talk about um, patience, but I'm out of time. So I w was going to give you the test. Here's a test. Write speech. And this is from um, not at all or never to completely or always. When I speak, I remind myself not to exaggerate in a harmful way. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> I remember not to gossip or speak behind people's back. I take care to speak with people's well-being in mind. That's a beautiful one. One of the dimensions of wise speech is uh, timeliness. We might be saying things that are true, but is this the right time to actually say that? I love that one. To be careful about timing. Before I say something, I think about the consequences of what I will say. I'm out of time, but again, if you uh, Google mindfulness inventory space PDF, you will come up with the whole list. <laughs> and uh, you can do an assessment of your path factors. So let's just sit for a moment. May we use every possible opportunity to build the strength of the path factors, of the paramis, of the brahma-viharas. May we not waste any time. And may we remember to set the intentions for all of our actions so that they build the positive qualities in our hearts.